it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. After a three-year hiatus, Bill Simmons is back with his NBA trade value rankings for the 2018 and 2019 season. You can check that out, as well as our year-in-review articles wrapping up everything 2018 on the site. Also, throughout the holidays, we will be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows as usual. Happy holidays from The Ringer. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I have a small but persistent cough. And joining me on the other line is my good friend from Philadelphia, whom I miss dearly. It's Chris Ryan. What's up, man? How are you? <laughs> I wish I wish that people could just peek under the hood to understand just how much Kaya is helping us out today. Kaya just fed you your line. Kaya is spelled C-H-A-I-A-A-A with an apostrophe over the third A. There's been a lot of speculation on our Facebook group about how, how Kaya spells her name. I haven't seen this. Is Kaya a recurring character on our Facebook group now? Yeah, she's like uh, she's like Walt from Lost to, uh, to our <laughs> Facebook group. What I want people to know at this time of year is we are truly grateful for Kaya's help, especially because her commute is potentially litigious like that is not okay (laughs) she comes from so far away to do the show with us and i also just want people to understand that this is the time of year chris is in philadelphia we tried to give him a recording device but chris doesn't do that he's just he's a studio guy so he's clearly the, the audio fidelity isn't what we wish it was he's on the phone i've got this i got this cold i can't shake it this is the time when there is one set of footsteps in the sand in the podcast sands and that's because kaya is carrying the watch podcast you make Kaya's commute sound like it's Fury Road. I have now, it is the time in every relatively new Angelino's life where I have now done the full 180 because when I arrived here, and people love this stuff, by the way, so let's just let's just keep recording. You know, when you arrive in Los Angeles, you arrive with the, the youthful spirit that you brought with you when you were a visitor here, a tourist, which is to say, Santa Monica, sure. It's just a car ride. And then what happens is over the course of your time here, it, the circles constrict and constrict and constrict. And now where I'm like, if you invite me over, I'm like, it's kind of, it's Silver Lake, man. That's, I don't know. It's a Tuesday. That seems far. It's 11 minutes. It's, woof. I mean, sometimes it can be 13. Kaya is coming from the ocean, as far as I understand it. Kaya, Kaya is from the first 20 minutes of Aquaman. You know what I can't remember? When was the time that I gave you a ride back to your house? Yeah. And you were like, thank you. And I dropped you off. <laughs> and I said, please give me a five-star rating. And then uh, I turned like the corner, and it was the Beyonce concert at Dodger Stadium, and it took me an hour to get back to my house. <laughs> it's, it's, actually, it's actually worse than that, Chris, because it wasn't that you just gave me a ride. It wasn't that. It was that... Uh, I, I, I let's not name names. Let's let's create a fictional construct character who we'll refer to as my wife. Uh, <laughs> asked if if anyone, and then she specifically suggested you, due to your your you know infamously toned physique, could come over and help me move large boxes because oh, yeah. we had just moved. And being a, a good neighbor and apparently part time Lyft driver, you just zipped yeah. over. And then uh, as soon as you left our house, you. If, Fellas, you got in formation, and the formation was wall to wall traffic. That, that sucked. Yeah, but that was a while ago, so that wasn't a 2018 the, memory, unfortunately. The important thing is you still you've gotten over it, and it in no way <laughs> is right. affecting our friendship. Go. I've let it go. This is our last podcast of the year. Can you tell? 
<laughs> Today is a mailbag. We got some year-end questions from our listeners. And thank you so much to the listeners. You know, we I don't know if we do enough out of listener maintenance on this podcast where we say just how much you guys all mean to us, all the Baranskis out there. It's really just been uh, such a pleasure to interact with you guys, uh, to see the community grow out of the Facebook group. Um, shout out to Facebook. Yeah, I, They had a great year as well. Ju- I just want to thank all of our listeners for sharing their information with the Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, I think that was highly generous because you, yeah. it's not just your takes, you know, it's, it's the whole Did you know that my Richard package. Madden imitation is sponsored by the Royal Bank of Scotland? It's a time of year for full disclosure. I really... It's a subprime mortgage, Mick! This is great stuff. This is great stuff, guys. You, only on this podcast. Only on this podcast. I share all of Chris's sentiments about all our wonderful listeners. Thank you for interacting and, and uh, and listening and putting up with us, frankly. We, I hope I hope we deserve I hope we deserve your trust. So should we go through some of these questions? Like we have some other stuff that we we could talk about in the margins. I, I suggested discussing a, a new film. Chris, because now he's fully embracing the anarchic Andy role on this podcast. He's left <laughs> he's left the studio, he's left the state, he's on a phone, he's not watching movies. So he he didn't want to join me in my hot take review of Vice. So that's okay. We'll push that forward. Why don't you let the people know? I mean, obviously, it's not out. uh, It's not out for most Americans yet. I think it's in L.A., New York, but it's certainly not open here in the streets of Philadelphia. But give us your your capsule review. I I don't want to do it because I want to actually have a conversation about it when people can talk about it. But I, I the question I'll ask people as they go see this film, if they go see this film, is when you're watching it, and there are certainly things to enjoy in the movie. Who's this movie for? That's a question I have for that movie. And, and I don't know, you know, maybe when we talk about it, we can have a more valid, we can have a conversation about the validity of that question in general. But mm-hmm. I just, I, I, if, if, you're, if someone's in the audience watching a movie and isn't being transported and is instead wondering, who is this made for? I kind of feel like you're losing. But that's, well, this is kind of a deep watch reference, but maybe it's for all the people who went to the theater to see Aquaman only to find out it wasn't a real movie. <laughs> so I respect those people so much. By the way, here's how real a movie Aquaman is. The Grey Lady, the New York Times herself, let our old friend Wesley Morris review it. Did you see that review? I didn't. Wesley pulling the Grantland card on New York Times. Like, Tony Scott has been reviewing movies there for so long. He's just like, he can just, he can just do the surgery in like a tight, tight 650 words. You know what I mean? Wesley just, Wesley just, just, he just set up shop. It's really a fun read. I really enjoyed it. And I couldn't believe the times let him do it. He refers to Amber Heard's outfit as a character vomiting 50 Katy Perry songs. (laughs) That, that, that Twitter feed first time in the New York times or whatever, that just like searches for words that have never appeared before is just going to be on overdrive. Thanks to this review. So, yeah. So apparently no, it's a movie or, it, it. or it's an art installation. All right. Should we get into our questions? Yeah, absolutely. You have the list as well. Do you want to go? Uh, you you, want, you, you take want... the first one here. Okay. Should we start with a serious question? How do you feel about that? The, sure. I, this, you want to, you, you, this question from, 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 well, there's, there's an, a Twitter user. Usually I make Chris do this where he, he has to fumble his way through the Twitter handles. This is either Swisha Swart or Swisha's Wart. Or Swishasu art. I'm not sure which is best. But anyway, this person asked, at the end of another tumultuous year in the U.S., do you find yourself valuing the importance of pop culture more or less than in stable times? And stable is in quotes, which I appreciate. 
How do you feel about this, man? God, it's that's such a tough question, man. Uh, I think at the end of the year, as more and more, maybe more serious films come out in the last three months of the year, uh, you start to maybe kind of feel like, oh, okay, maybe art is the moral compass, and 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 maybe I can really be intellectually stimulated by pop culture. But for the most part this year, I found it difficult to just kind of keep my eye on the ball in terms of what was important in the world, because I think you're getting so much uh, disturbing news all the time about the state of the world. So it's it's where does art slide in there? Where does pop culture specifically slide in there? And one thing that I thought was interesting was I I think I'll I'll cop to the idea that, say, five years ago, I, I was a little less... I was a little more reluctant to kind of mix my art with my politics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I wanted it to be a little bit more discreet. I wanted it to be a situation where I you know, I was I was recognizing art for its formal accomplishments and not evaluating it based on its uh what what it had to say about the world politically or morally or socially. I have not forgotten the comments you used to leave on some of my Grandland reviews. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Back when Facebook was good. No, I just think that it's 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 increasingly impossible to like watch stuff in a vacuum. And I've been sort of fascinated to read the pieces that have popped up around Roma even. You know, a, a movie that has been for the most part universally lauded, but people uh, I've read a couple of really uh, provocative pieces, especially one in the Believer that that you know are are these sort of readings of the class issues in Roma. And I think what's important is to try and take that stuff and, and actually like read it or listen to it, however you're getting it with an open mind rather than just be defensive about it because you happen to love the film. It's, it, it's possibly critiquing. Uh, I'm kind of rambling. What do you think? Well, I, I'm interested in that point. I haven't read that piece. The Roma stuff kind of, kind of rubs me the wrong way, but I, what, and, but I feel like everything is is obviously heightened, and we're in a very precarious moment, not just because all cultural criticism is, uh, well, there's just so much of it because we live in an instant hot take a Twitter society where everything immediately is carrion for the various wolves of discourse. Uh, and maybe we're, we're among them, but we're kind of the old wolves loping in the back of the pack, easily picked off by hunters. But it's also because... We want to engage with the big issues of our time because we are frustrated and, frankly, scared about the way things are headed. And so, and, and I apologize, I don't mean to to create straw men out of Roma critics who I have not engaged with, but sometimes I worry that what I feel to be, the thing about Roma is, is I think it's a masterpiece. We talked about it in a previous show. I think it's an artistic masterpiece. But what I also really appreciate and respect is that it appears to me to be a good faith engagement with the gray areas of the world. And what I mean is the movie steers directly into issues of persistent, unsolvable, potentially issues of class, specifically related to uh, Mexican society, but really transferable to all society. And when I say good faith, what I mean is that Cuaron, who grew up with privilege, with people of mixed race serving him, basically— the movie is his attempt to grapple with that. I don't know whether it's an apology or it's an exploration. I'm not sure if that distinction matters. But what I appreciate is the good faith grappling with it. And what I get concerned about with a lot of cultural criticism these days is that everything needs to pass a purity test, not about the intention, but about the result. So Roma could only be a good film if it successfully articulated the 
long and difficult and punishing shadow of of classism, if not outright racism or sexism in Mexican society. And I don't know if any piece of art can actually successfully do that. So that's a specific example that maybe answers the question. The bigger question about am I valuing pop culture in my life? I don't know. I think I like things a little bit less, which I'm not thrilled about. I think the things that I love, truly, truly loved, like Roma, like Atlanta, like the Pusha album, all things that end in A, apparently, were so uplifting and transformative and 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 exhilarating that I just I love them as much as I've ever loved anything. But but it's there aren't as many highs, and I I can't tell if that's the era, if that's the distraction and worry of the era, or if it's the distraction and worry of the technology, because I just think I have a shorter attention span, and that some of my favorite experiences this year, this is going to be the oldest, I promise this will be the oldest manist thing I say on this podcast. Well, actually, I can't guarantee that anymore. Or um, just reading books, because it's quieter, yeah. and it's not a screen, and despite the fact that reading a novel on my phone or watching Atlanta on my TV or engaging with smart criticism on my laptop, those are all disparate acts. They all involve screens, and they all come with the same attendant sort of itchiness that, I, that I'm, I'm finding a hard time navigating. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously have the same anxiety. I'm curious to know, I mean, this is obviously we're kind of going off, off the rails a little bit, but I'd be curious also to know for you how much working on such a massive project as Briar Patch has changed your relationship to popular culture as well. Well, it take it definitely, as listeners of this podcast can attest, it took me out of it a little bit. <laughs> My ability to engage with it at the time I had to watch things. I, I'll say that it on on the on the positive side, and I and I've alluded to this before. Um, I don't honestly know the degree to which I appreciated production design or sound design before I actually had to to grapple with it. You know, th- that has increased my appreciation of things that get it right. But I I, I guess. It, that that this experience has been so totally positive that if anything that has maybe lifted up my experience as a whole because I've seen firsthand how many dedicated people work so hard and how much thought and intention goes into everything or could go into everything if possible. So I I hope that it's made me more charitable. And again, I don't know. I don't think necessarily good criticism can come from a place where the critic is beginning with, well, everyone sure tried hard, you know, because. <laughs> Because sure. I'm sure the people who are um, illustrating Jason Momoa's flowing hair underwater in Aquaman tried really hard and did their best. But I'd rather read Wesley make fun of the Katy Perryness of the costumes. I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's made me feel a little more positive in what I'm doing. But I don't, I don't know yet how it's affected my engagement with with the world as a whole. Well, I'm sure we'll find out more next year. Uh, for our next question. Uh, Corellius wants to know, is there a show that is plausibly next in line to dominate the monoculture like Game of Thrones? Obviously, Game of Thrones is ending next summer or next spring. Andy, you know, I I was thinking about this a a bit when we got the question. And, you know, I think the obvious answer for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because it will also involve swords and shields and and, uh, creatures, is Lord of the Rings. Amazon's mounting a Lord of the Rings adaptation that is rumored to, or I think is confirmed to, center on the young Aragorn, the character that Viggo Mortensen played in the Peter Jackson movies. And uh, they've spent already uh, rumored up to like a quarter of a billion dollars on development, or at least just getting the rights. It's just getting and, the rights, uh, yeah. 
This would be obviously the, the next in line uh, to be the, the, the sort of monoculture-dominating show. But there's something kind of interesting about Lord of the Rings in comparison to Game of Thrones. And I was thinking about this because I've obviously been thinking about Thrones. When Thrones came on, I didn't know what it was. Yep. In the same way that when Lost came on, I didn't know, you know, we didn't have any pre, we especially didn't have any, any, anything to go on with Lost. But even with Thrones, a large swath of the people who were watching Game of Thrones had no idea what was going to happen, who these people were, what the stakes were, what the politics of this world were. And then obviously you add on to that all the book readers who are seeing their sort of imaginations executed on screen. But there's something about the way that Game of Thrones didn't just convert people, it, it minted them. It minted fans. And Lord of the Rings, at this point, you have to think about it. What are we at? Like, when was the first, when did Fellowship of the Ring come out? Like 15 years ago? Oh, longer, longer. I think. Yeah, I think. Well, I think the the last was well, that the last. No, that's not the. That's the first one, right? The that's the first one. The last one, I think, won the Oscar in two thousand three. Oh, okay. So we're talking like more than you know, almost twenty years ago. Then, I, I don't know. I feel like that that's been in people's minds a lot. I don't think that there's any Lord of the Rings fatigue, but I don't know that it's like a layup for this to become a blockbuster show. Uh, let me apologize. To all my Aragorns out there, Fellowship of the Ring, the first film came out in two thousand one. Two Towers, two thousand two. Return of the King, two thousand three. Um, I don't think it's going to be Lord of the Rings, and I think it's for all the reasons he said. I think that the thing that unites Game of Thrones and Lost, and maybe even Breaking Bad, shows that we certainly all loved, but also in our rough sketch of culture, rough sketch version of how culture works, like they all captured that similar monomania, basically, of everyone just thrilling. They all were shocking. They all were surprising. They all did things that we didn't expect and then got us hooked on that high. That's a very, very dangerous high to chase because you can't just chase shocks and surprises because they have to be earned. And that's the harder work, both creatively and then in terms of development as well. You can't just generate them, and you can't generate them by spending a quarter of a billion dollars to make the umpteenth adaptation of something that's been beloved for half a century or more. I just don't, I don't see it. Mainly because you don't spend that much money to upend what the product is, to shock the people who already love the product. And yeah, I th- right. And, and I think that Amazon, um, by the way, just sh- shout out to Rob Harvilla from The Ringer who wrote, I thought was an incredibly smart and insightful piece about the state of Amazon's prime video, Amazon's TV business. For The Ringer, a, a couple, I guess we're running this later, so a week or so ago. And the thing about that that I thought was really impressive is that it was an entirely forward-facing piece. It was purely about the consumer reviewer experience. It had no interest in exploring like the business decisions behind it, which I think made it more effective as a critique. But if you fold the business part into it, I mean, Amazon weirdly is the world's, it's the world's Kmart, right? Like, and I mean that with respect. It's like the world's, it's the world's corner store. They have everything. And then they decided to be an art house cinema inside of that bodega, which was a strange choice, even though it gave us things like transparent. I think they are now trying to, again, I don't blame them for it, make entertainment on the ma- on the biggest mass scale possible. I think, you know, Jack Ryan is an example of that. And Lord of the Rings should slot into that same thing because they want people to watch. They Can want- you think of anything that would replace Game of Thrones in the monoculture if it's not Lord of the Rings? Well, Game of Thrones spinoff? With Naomi Watts, I, I I don't I I don't know honestly I don't I think we've we've long pointed to Game of Thrones as the last one of these things and 
uh, The Last Standing show, and I, and I don't see anything in development poised to replace it. And I, I kind of am okay with that because I think the thing that replaces it should surprise people. But look, you know, again, who are we to say? Like, there was a story on The Ringer, it's a website that I enjoy reading, about Fortnite. And Chris, I got to be honest with you, I had no idea what Fortnite is. I just, I, I know Bill likes to play it in that it's very popular, but I don't understand what it is. And the scale of its popularity is staggering. And if that's yeah. monoculture, then I don't think something on Hulu is going to reach it. I guess going off of that last question, why don't we go to J- Jim Bingo 2's question, which is, does it matter if the final season of Game of Thrones is good? It seems impossible that it could end up being bad at this point because the criteria will just be, is this epic? Do we get to spend more time with our favorite characters and are there cool battles? What should the criteria be? I think Jim's on to something, but I think that the secondary part of his question is something we won't be able to resolve until a couple weeks or months after the final season airs, like until we consider it as part of a larger experience or until people start rewatching or even watching for the first time from the beginning with this as the final chapter. Because I think he's exactly right. Like everyone just wants to go back and see their buddies and see crazy shit happen at the end. And that is a very different experience than the first three seasons where we're like, where it's stacking plot points and excitement and surprises like Jenga Tower and we're all just riveted. It's just a different experience at the end of something, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think it probably the I would invert Jim's question. It's not that it can't be good. It will be I think it will be good. I just think it it's not going to please everybody. And if it gets like a 51%, I think that'll be a success. If it if it satisfies half the people, I think it will be a success. I do wonder whether or not we're going to get half of it or more is going to be battles. I know that there was a report I think that I think uh, whether it was Kit Harrington or somebody just talked about how they had just filmed for again the longest or the biggest battle scene they had ever filmed before, yeah. and that's given even with Battle of the Bastards. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm looking forward to it, obviously, quite a bit. But I, I just do wonder whether or not, with all the things that came out of last season, with all the the feeling that people had that they had sort of left the blueprint behind and that they were kind of going without training wheels that maybe they needed the training wheels back. I think it'll be a season that's really picked over a lot. It's really hard to successfully synthesize the two poles of this phenomenon for the long term. And those two poles being the blockbuster, mass market, outrageous, they're fucking dragons fighting each other in the sky aspect. And the, oh, how much time is Arya going to spend with the theater troops of Bravos? And how do the theater troops make money? And who strikes the sets aspect of it? Well, we spent years talking about how we wanted the you know, the Bank of Bravo's show. Well, that's probably why everyone tells us we should read the books, because by from what I understand, like, that's what the books do, right? Like, all the right. food and all the the fiduciary roles and et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, that's not movies. That's not TV. And it's not something that you can just tie a bow on, as George Martin is finding in his Word documents, Right. What 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 Benioff and Weiss are going to be doing is what they did at the end of the last season, which is taking all of that detail and all of the assumed detail that a large portion of the fan base has acquired through reading extracurricularly, and they're going to fucking pedal to the metal and and drive it straight through the wall. That's it, right? They're going to end it all. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's going to satisfy the first half of that equation much more than it's going to satisfy the second half of the equation, which is why I think that you know, I don't know. Okay, this is not why, but it is. It suggests a version of this where George Martin, who has stepped back considerably from his role in this TV show, will 
I don't know if he's going to have the last laugh, but he will be able to, should he choose to finish the books, give the people who are dissatisfied with the, you know, scale of the TV show, the the more detailed, considerate, considered slow ending that maybe they, they actually want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andy, what new 2018 shows, streaming or otherwise, are most likely to hit a sophomore slump and which likely, which are likely to have better season twos? Whoa, that's a good question. Uh, I got two off the top of my head from my own top four this year, and then I'm very curious what you've got. I think that Succession is going to have a better season two than season one because it is a show that had enormous momentum and got better and better as the season went on, which is a wonderful and rare thing. And I have to believe that they're hitting season two with the swagger and confidence of people who really understand their characters and the type of stories they want to tell and how to do it. And also the baked-in goodwill of all the people who've come aboard the show who will be excited to see all the secondary and tertiary characters again. I have no take no joy in saying this, but I have real concern about Killing Eve season two. Uh, again, for reasons that we've talked about on the pod but are worth repeating, that was a show that felt like a dare and succeeded on a very difficult level of execution, pun intended. And once it's, and actually did the reverse succession where I think it got a little bit weaker as the season went on. And this will be a season, second seasons are always hard. This will be a season where they don't really know probably how many seasons they're going to go. So without the threat of like, they're really just going to catch Villanelle and that'll be the end of it looming over the season. How can they replace that tension with something equally exciting? And I'm not sure how they could. Yeah, I share your sort of mild concern about Killing Eve. I would say this about Succession. You'll say anything about Succession, as Sam Esmail knows. There may not be a bigger Succession fan than me. I hope they don't turn the clock back. I hope that they don't say, okay, we've got something good here. Let's have two or three more coup attempts. Right. Let's put Kendall back where he was at the beginning of season one. Let's have him get out of rehab and again mount another power struggle with his father. I don't. I hope that's not what they do, and that would be the only thing that would give me pause about the second season. Yeah, you, you don't want that hard reset. I agree with you. Anything that you feel particularly optimistic about? Are we are we are we in line for Bodyguard season two, Chris? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think that they probably really want to make a season two, but I don't know what they would do with that since he got, gets back together with Vicky. I mean, what, what? what else could you want from the world? What? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. What a spoiler. What a spoiler. I we mean, should have Kai hit the spoiler siren. <laughs> yeah, my understanding of that show is it's purely a relationship drama. It's just yeah. about a guy trying to get back together with his, with his best gal. Uh, That's all it's about. It's about the nuances of the private life of a guy who happens to be a bodyguard. Can I answer this question about um, from Trust the Pastas? Great handle. Where did Maisel settle in my top 10? Because, you know, I I did something that I I, I usually don't do, and I, I put Mrs. Maisel in my top 10 for this year, sight unseen, based on the strength of the first season. And guys, I regret it. Man. I regret it. I, come down. I love this show. But this is a, it is a, Difficult second season in a lot of ways. I'm not saying it's out of the top 10 entirely, but it definitely tumbled to the back end of it, mainly because this, it's just not, you know, we, I think we talked about it a little bit when we had Jason Manzukas on the show. It felt like it had a very steady hand in the first season, and this season felt like 
all the excesses, honestly, of Gilmore Girls, a show that I also respected a lot and enjoyed sometimes, but sometimes I, it was just too much for me. It was just mm-hmm. like, you know that feeling like if you have a coffee too late in the day or a tea and you drink it real fast and you just, you just not, you're not feeling great. You're just, it's all going a little too fast and it's maybe 5 p.m. and the sun's going down. That's kind of the feeling some episodes of season two have given me about the show where it's just, let's, it goes to Paris and with, to follow the parents who we barely know yet. You know, it's just, is she pursuing a career or is she not pursuing a career? It's, it's so all over the place. And again, I don't think you can separate the strands of the show if you pulled out some of the DNA that makes it do crazy things, then it's not a spectacular and special show, which it is. But I, I just in terms of like a artful and excellent season, it is less of the first and 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 not of not the second. So it wouldn't have made your top ten. No, I <clears throat> I'm trying to think what I would have replaced it with, and you know I, I still like it and have and like parts of it all told better than I'm trying to think what was just scraping it like Collateral or end of the fucking world. People have asked about our feelings about the Deuce season two. I feel like my my feeling about the Deuce season two is I still haven't finished it, which speaks to my, I, I, I enjoy it, but it I, I couldn't couldn't quite get back into it to the degree that I hoped, and I probably will, and maybe that'll crash the top 10, but Maisel's still in it, but I think it's, I think I had it as a placeholder at five, and I think it's probably more like nine or 10. Okay. I, it's so funny because, like, I, I obviously I wasn't like lukewarm on the first season. I liked the first season a lot, but I feel like the second season I enjoy it. I know everybody's just like, "How dare they go to the Catskills for three episodes?" But I don't know. I just kind of, I kind of, kind of got a kick out of it. I don't want to. By the way, I am just gobsmacked and slightly entertained by the Maisel backlash. I don't want to be a member of that club at all. I think the show is very special and very entertaining and still very promising. You're just you saying know? it might not be at the, the reach the heights of the first season. I, I, I put it that high unseen because I loved that first season so much that I think I underrated it. And I wanted to reflect that in the face of, you know, a, a, a listener and fan and friend who is, you know, who, who is very, very strong in his opinions when he comes on our show. And so I wanted to make sure that I dug my heels in only to be disarmed by the fact that Sam actually likes Maisel, so I, I did not know. So uh, I, I was weak, everyone, and, and I'm trying to be stronger in the new year. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll come back and answer some more of your questions in the mailbag. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an 8th gen Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming, Dell Cinema Technology makes the XPS 13 the perfect laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Call 800 by dell to learn more or visit dell.com slash XPS 13. Sponsored by Dell and Intel. And we're back. We got more of your questions. We're doing this end of the year mailbag that we love doing so much. Chris, there are two book questions on here. And I know... I know people love the book talk, and I know that we owe them a new selection in our Double Down Book Club. Thank you to everyone who read Dog Soldiers, even though we didn't talk about it. That book, that book takes a turn, man. Um, it, gets, it, gets, it gets dark. You're there, so soft now. There's, there's, there's a quality of book that Chris and I get really hyped about, and like we'll just like be texting each other lines from and get very excited. And then like three quarters in, the discourse goes silent because stuff happens that we were like, oh, gosh, okay. 
And Doug Soldier is one of those. Man, I was like, and then he does this, and you were like, I'm out. Yeah, it was it was a lot. Two questions here I want to get to quickly. One, I think we can we can just say right away, which is one from Stova one two P, which is one TP, which is any books from this year that would make a good gift to a Pelicanos fan. I feel like we should shout out again, friend of the pod, Patrick Hoffman's book Every Man a Menace. Which, Absolutely, which was That's quite a stocking stuffer. <laughs> It, yeah. But particularly, I think people who have enjoyed Pelicanos' novels, like it is similar in some ways in terms of the granular detail and lived in experience of the characters, but he finds a way to play with structure that is truly unsettling and surprising and pretty incredible. Yeah, we'll have to have Patrick on the show again soon. Uh, just probably my favorite active crime writer. And uh, he, he wrote a masterpiece. Every Man of Menace is, is everything I ever wanted from a crime novel. The other question I wanted to get to is um, from Matt Linton, asking what our favorite books of the year were um, and what books are most excited for 2019. I am definitely going to forget things um, when when you ask that question. I, someone just asked about Pelicanos. I'm really enjoying the new Pelicanos book, The Man Who Went Uptown. I am currently having a really good time, although I do have some questions, uh, with the new Haruki Murakami novel. One of my favorite writers, if not my favorite writer of all time, his new book, Killing Commendatore, is really worth sinking into. I'm like 400 pages in of 700. But he is definitely is one of those great artists who, as he's gotten older, spends proportionately more time discussing the bodies of like just pubescent young girls. And I'm like, this is, we don't need this content, Haruki, you know, and especially in this moment. But I don't speak Japanese, so I can't communicate that to him. But it is a little unfortunate. Um, Mm -hmm. A writer I wanted to shout out, and Chris, I wanted to shout this out to you, and I hadn't done it yet. So this seems like the perfect opportunity. A writer named Alan Parks, who wrote his first novel this year. It's called Bloody January. And it is a dark crime book set in Glasgow, Scotland in the 70s. And it's really good. And it's so clearly the beginning of a new series with a detective named Harry McCoy. His new book in the Harry McCoy series, February Sun, is coming out, and you guessed it, um, February of this year. But this dude used to work, Alan Parks used to work in the music industry, like so many of us. I think he designed album covers for people. And this is just one of those books where you just put your boots on and you go for a long slog through like a really morally filthy, if not just outright filthy city. Um, There's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of regret. There's a lot of bad decision-making. And it's done with a narrator that you really can enjoy living with. It's it's truly a great mystery novel for people looking for one. And I, I, I worry that it it just sort of went between the cracks because there's so many good mystery books. But shout-out to Alan Parks. Bloody January is worth a read. That's great. I can't wait to check that one out. Mine is one I've talked about before on the show, which is Cherry, uh, the debut novel by uh, a guy named Nico Walker, who had this book assembled from writing he was doing uh, from prison. It's basically Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son with bank robberies. It's about a guy who goes to uh, Iraq as a soldier, comes back, is hooked on painkillers, becomes hooked on heroin, and starts robbing banks to feed his habit. It's got this incredibly spare, uh, haunting style that's very reminiscent of Johnson's stuff, and it it's the book that stuck with me the most this year, probably. I don't think I'll forget it for a really long time. And if I can just also shout out, because a couple of people asked about the book that I was reading on the flight back to Philly, yeah. and it is probably the best thing I read this year, 
Uh, and it's been, you know, one of those things that's so great when you find an author and you're like, I can't believe I've gone this long without reading this person. Uh, it's Jonathan Coe, and the book is called What a Carve Up, although in America it's also known as The Winshaw Legacy. And it's this dazzling postmodern book about a, uh, a family in England, this terrible, terrible family of rich assholes. Uh, and a man who is writing a biography of that family and the people around that family whose lives they've destroyed. And it is just unbelievable. It's uh, set in various parts of the last 50 to 60 to 70 years of, of English history, and it is, it's just an incredible book. Ooh, can I just do two more quickly? Yeah, sure. new book by a great Mexican writer called Martin Solaris called Don't Send Flowers. It is a just like dazzling and horrific and weirdly sometimes funny investigation of um, of of crime and sort of the, the state of things in the Gulf states of Mexico. It's set in a city called La Eternidad, the Eternity, and an, like a, a grizzled cop, ex-cop, Carlos Trevino, is called in to help solve the kidnapping of a local uh, rich uh, local businessman's daughter. And it is a trip through Mexico that often feels too horrific to be real, but sometimes too real to be fantasy. And for a flip side of that, if people like nonfiction, um, there's an incredible memoir that was published this year called The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. He's a Mexican-American writer and uh, scholar who, in order to better understand the border after growing up near it and studying it in graduate school, became a border patrol agent for a few years and deals with his own. It's a very lyrical memoir, and it's about the lived-in experience of the border by someone who is hates what he is doing, quite honestly, but feels better him than others doing it. And it was controversial on both sides, which I think makes it worthy of attention. And it's actually the writing is good enough to make it worthy of, of your attention as well. Amazing. What's next? There's a question here about next year's shows and specifically about which show will have a better season from Dr. Ewent or Dre Went. Dre Went? That's probably more likely than... Dr. Ewent. I'm really bad at this part of the job. Um, which will have a better season next year, True Detective or Mindhunter? And these are, you know, you, you're a little bit already on the record for True Detective, but I'm curious if you could articulate your hopes and dreams for both shows. I think it's Mindhunter. First of all, Fincher and Andrew Dominic directing season two of Mindhunter. Second of all, I don't think Mindhunter is as locked into its tropes uh, and into its storytelling devices and into its tone. I think it can still be a lot of different things. And I only think towards the sort of second half of the season, did it really start to kind of go to the places that it wanted to go. I think that it, the, you know, the Jonathan Groff co- uh, performance became stronger and stronger as the season went on. And I just think it's got a little bit more room to work than true detective, true detective to be successful kind of has to go back to first season. It kind of has to go back to its its roots, and that's going to be great. Like, I think if it does that, it, we will have an awesome show on our hands. But for Mindhunter, I think Mindhunter can kind of be anything, and the Mindhunter's interests are not so much about, you know, who done it as much as it's as as why done it, and that's the whole premise of the show. I, I'm, I'm with you, obviously, and, I, and excited about Mindhunter, very excited about Mindhunter. Here's a question. I don't even know if you have an answer prepared for it or if you even care, but it's relevant. And by the time this podcast airs, it may have been answered. But Brian Young wants to know who we would pick to host the Oscars. And if you need a second to think about it, I've got, I've got some thoughts. I, I like just straight up like the first words that came to my mind were Charles Dance. 
<laughs> just just frowning and disappointed with everyone for their decision making and for the choices. Exactly. Hello, plebeians. <laughs> He's just so so over it. I do like that. I have three stages of picking. One would be like. I, I I guess I don't care. It doesn't matter. They don't necessarily need a host. But I do like good hosts to the Oscars. I thought Jimmy Kimmel has done a great job the last few years. I think that the internet suggested, and I agree with Maya Rudolph and Tiffany Haddish, because they were incredible together when they presented. And they would obviously bring a very different energy, but they would be very entertaining and fun. And then the other choice would be, why not Trevor Noah? I, I if, if, if If we're looking for people who successfully host things, which I think is a probably good place to start. He's been doing a really good job on The Daily Show, pretty much under the radar since he took since the, the, the initial reaction to him uh, died down. I think he's not only good at hosting The Daily Show, I just think he's an incredibly skillful, um, intuitive performer who just gets better at every... He just takes challenges and, and pulls them off and gets better as he goes. And I think he would, on some level, understand what the job was and pull it off with some level of aplomb. Yeah, absolutely. Those are good, those are good suggestions, man. Thanks. I'm, 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 you know, would you believe I haven't even had coffee today? This is purely <laughs> cold medicine, and it's great stuff. It's, uh, it's called PCP. Um, How many more do we got? Gabriel Sabalas uh, says, uh, "Will the critical asks Will the critical success of Roma and potential award success, depending on streaming versus theater bait, pressure studios to greenlight more fifteen to twenty-five million dollar dramas?" The overarching question: Will the threat of streaming services financing prestige directors' passion projects usher an era of well-funded studio dramas? And will continued success of the streaming services allow them more leverage with theaters in the long run? That is a lovely and optimistic question, Gabriel. Yeah, I actually think that the uh, there will be the tug of war between your Alfonso Corones, people trying to get the Paul Thomas Andersons and the Coen Brothers of the world to make films on Netflix or Amazon versus uh, for your traditional studios, big and small. I think the bigger question for me next year and going forward is would the anecdotal success of To All the Boys of Love Before set it up in Kissing Booth lead to a revival of romantic comedies, of teen movies. There are all these genres that Hollywood just kind of ignores now. Mm-hmm. Um, and will the passion for those projects that you see on, 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 uh, on Netflix lead to Hollywood, maybe getting back into some of those departments and especially minting new stars, which is now maybe slowly becoming the kind of thing that happens on Netflix. I think that's all very, very spot on and insightful. I, I'm hoping that big studios get back in the bird box business. Because, look, guys, I know nothing about this movie, but if there's a world where major film studios no longer want to greenlight films where major box office stars are blind, I don't want to live in this world anymore. Come on. Come on. That is a hallmark of award season. And all I know about Bird Box (laughs) from the billboard that's on Sunset right now across the street from Netflix headquarters that I pass on the way here to the studio is that Sandra Bullock is blind. She won an Oscar. Let her make her blind movie. I don't understand I really why Netflix want to has to use the meme of. Uh, I want to start using it as a meme. The picture of her with the blindfold sitting in a canoe. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm there. I'm there for your meme yeah. creation. I, I. I think it's very sweet, if not a little naive, to think that the studios will look at Roma and think that they want any piece of it. Honestly, I think they're very grateful, on some level, that someone else had to foot the bill and potentially lose money for it. Um, and I think Roma is a best case example because Quaron is an established 
uh, commercial director, and if you're in business with him, chances are this next film might be something that could make a lot more money than Roma. Um, this is boom times again for independent film, but not in movie theaters. You know, like all the people who were responsible for the 90s, like getting the band back together, you know, and, and making, churning out content all of a sudden for Netflix and Amazon and places that will greenlight it. It's just a different thing. The, the businesses are so deeply different. Like, I'm very happy that people like um, uh, Tamara Jenkins, who made um, Private Life this year, and Nicole Hall of Center, who made um, uh, The Land of Steady Habits. There was a moment when great filmmakers like them would have trouble getting fi- – I'm sure they still have trouble getting financing, but – getting financing because their movies would have to be released in theaters and go through that whole thing. It seems like that middle ground of filmmakers can make movies now because Netflix or Amazon will pay the, pay for them because that is a nice, you can sort of slide it right into the type of content they make and they can get stars which look good for them. That's a good thing, but I, I just don't think it has anything to do with the way things used to be in terms of what movies are and, what they, and, and where we're going to see them. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that the answer is it would be great to see them. It would be great to see Netflix create a little bit more of a competitive market for the services of really great filmmakers, and also to create a world in which, like, I, I'm sure Chloe Zhao's Eternals movie will be cool, but where it's not indie to superhero movie, and there's something in between. That would be the that would be ideal. Yeah, I, I mean that that would be ideal, but I, I don't think that's been figured out yet. I have one I want to ask you. This is from Brandon Stone, dog. You ready? Is this coming at me hot, unprepared? What's the best meal or restaurant you went to in 2018? Oh my God, I'm not ready. Um, Boy. Okay, I'm going to go off the top of my head, remembering very little. Um, You didn't come to my house for pollo mojado, so I won't be offended if you don't say that. No, because as far as I understand, you're still perfecting the recipe. You know, there's a level of liquidity (laughs) that you're still still chasing. Um, I had to... I, I mean, I, I think I had a lot of great meals this year, um, but the two that immediately jump into mind, and I'm going to do one for both, one for each coast. Um, there's a restaurant that opened in near my old neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, since I left called Claro, and it's in Gowanus, basically, just, just below Park Slope, and it is a Oaxacan restaurant. And uh, when I was back in the city, um, and my wife had a big birthday party there with friends, it was truly exceptional, maybe the best Mexican meal I've had outside of Mexico, um, rivaling anything I've eaten in Mexico with just an excitement of flavors and preparations and also a truly kind and friendly space and wildly good mezcal, Um, which is a testament to how good the food was that I remember it, despite the almost uh, wet chicken level of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of, of mezcal that was consumed that night. The other one, I just want to give a shout out to a restaurant that's gotten some love on the Ringer Podcast Network recently, which is a restaurant in downtown LA called Shibumi, which is a style of Japanese cuisine that is really not found often in this country called Kapo cuisine. It's sort of in between like the highest kaiseki and like um, izakaya, just pub fare. Go there, have your mind blown um, at what's possible with just like uh, grilled meats cured seafood uh, and vegetables. It's really a special place. Also, great, great drinks there as well. Um, those are my two favorite restaurants that I can think of off the top of my head this year. What about you? What about you? you you're, you're a roving gourmand these days. You've been in more cities than I have even this year. Yeah, you know, I mean, my favorite meal of the year was the meal that I had with my cousins in Dalston in London. It was just a really simple Italian meal. I 
I can't even remember the name of the place, but you know, meals are defined by people. So I just wanted to to shout out my cousins, Jane and Bex, uh, and my wife. We had a lovely, lovely night out in East London uh, a couple weeks ago. But my favorite food that I ate at a restaurant, I guess, would be the pizza at Delancey in Seattle. Oh yeah, uh, you mentioned that once before on the podcast. That's very exciting. Yeah, it was just it was just fantastic. I don't know. I sometimes you just like if you eat, sometimes pizza can be like the the platonic ideal of food and, and they really were onto something there. The crust was incredible. I don't, you don't need me to go house of carbs on this. It was just really good. That's good stuff. We did well with that question without any preparation. I'm, I'm proud of us. Um, how should we end this? What do we got here that you want to finish with? Let's see. What should we end this with? Oh, what has the belt? Like what show? Yeah. Movies or TV. Oh, I saw that question. I thought it meant like, Oh, see, okay, so Kobe Jones, everybody. Oh, what has the belt, yes. movies or TV? All right, let me do that again. No, but, but I like the way we're, we're unsure. So Kobe Jones asked a question that we're going to end on, and the question as written is, who currently has the belt, movies or TV? And I think Chris's first read on this was, which movies or TV shows have the belt as we have end 2018? Belt. I think he's asking, which is better? Which is dominating, in a way, um, that, and, and, that it's really tough because what I think happened this year, if not, you know, it was already happening previous years, TV remain has flooded the zone and our brains and still dominates conversation in a almost like you ask how you are, you ask someone you say someone nice to see you, how are you? Maybe you talk about the weather. If you're in LA, you talk about how long it took to get to wherever you're going. Shouts to Kaya's commute. And then <laughs> And then you're like, oh, have you watched anything good lately? And it just feels pro forma, you know? Like, oh, have you seen that? Yeah, I saw that. Whereas movies are are winning the event wars, meaning the way Black Panther took over the world and dominated Star people's excitement. <clears throat> Stars Born took over certainly The Ringer <laughs> and the internet in general. Um, or even the way Roma is so far and away the best cultural experience I've had this season. Um, it depends how you want to rank it. M- movies s- this year, I think, hit hit bigger and hit harder, but TV never stopped hitting. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I would say that currently, uh, you know, it's award season, so I think that the movies are just great right now. Like, even if, you, even if you're not a fan of one, you, you'll be a fan of the other. And TV, I think, had just kind of reached a kind of maximum output this year so that even though there was always something to watch, it was almost impossible to know what to watch. And that's what basically the point of the podcast is, is to tell you. But sometimes we have to throw our hands up and say, man, I don't know right now. Uh, I mean, there's, we went through so many shows this year. I'd say we finished like 65% of them, you know, that we started, uh, maybe 70. Uh, and it, it just speaks to the, the way in which we're making and consuming television now, whereas movies for the most part are the same as they've always been since they started. It's like, they come out once a week, you can go see them, you can go talk about them afterwards. And maybe they were a waste of $15 or maybe they were the best thing you've done all year, like with Roma. And I think that that's always going to be the challenge for television as it goes from quantity over quality. And that's, that's definitely no matter what, which way you look at it, that's where we are right now. Yeah. And, and weirdly it goes all the way. It's like, it's come full circle because TV was always just kind of omnipresent. It just never made, it made very few, swings at I don't think we were ever, I, mean, I think in the in in the in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and yes. even upwards 
through half of the 90s, I don't think anybody was really looking to television to do no. what movies do. But but now they are, and movie stars and movie talent are looking to TV to do it too, certainly for their careers. And I'll say this as a consumer and as someone now on the other side making it, it's a very um, contradictory moment because everything is now being made to blow up as big as possible, to make the biggest possible splash at a time when it feels almost impossible to do that, to cut through, you know? Um, and I don't know whether that's due to the just the deluge of content or the way things are just bingeable. You know, um, I think by all, and, and again, he's our friend, but we don't have any inside knowledge on this, by all cultural barometers, I think Homecoming was a huge success on Amazon for Sam. Um, I mean, it's Julia Roberts on TV, and we liked it, and a lot, a lot of people liked it and seemed to talk about it. But how do you measure its success and its impact on the culture? I don't know. I assume Amazon has its own internal metrics. but I'm sure they do, although I will say this in defense of that, which is that I, I think it's great that, for instance, like something like Widows, which I loved and a lot of people loved, but which was a, not a successful movie at the box office, kind of gets written down in a little, a little bit, you know, because I think in, in the movies, we still need some feeling of, um, financial muscle to go along with artistic accomplishment. Um, and that's why the awards are so competitive anyway, is because if you put out a movie like widows and you're, you're shooting for, you feel like you maybe only have like a small percentage of the, uh, of the public, you know, engaged in it, awards can boost your profile so much where something like, Homecoming or Maisel can just sit on the Amazon homepage while you're doing your holiday shopping and somebody might be like, what's that? You know? Yeah. And, and they both get award nominations too. Right. But I think the, the, the one thing I will say is that Homecoming may or may not have grabbed everybody's attention for a couple of weeks. I think it did a very good job of doing that. But I feel like almost it has a longer runway to, to, to find that crowd, whereas something like Widows just kind of comes into the theaters and then goes on to the streaming services and is not lost to history by any means, but is maybe not remembered as much as it's not, it doesn't stick, you know? Right. It's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting time for us to be talking about it and to be confused by it. And we should probably end there. And I, I want to say that it's been another great year. I'm extremely grateful for three things above all else. I'm extremely grateful for the beach scene in Roma. I'm extremely grateful for Brian Tyree Henry's face at the end of the woods episode. And I'm extremely grateful for my friendship and creative partnership with you, buddy. This is always... Oh, man, is, thank you so much. This is so fun. Even though you're probably making the same face Brian Tyree Henry makes at the ends of the woods right now. But thankfully, <laughs> we're, not on, we're not on video right now to capture it. Um, this is the most fun thing I get to do. I'm so glad I get to do it. And thanks to you. Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks to Kaya. Thanks to the Ringer Podcast Network. Is anybody else? No. Shout out to Redondo Beach and Wet Chicken. And thank you, as always, to Christine Baranski for the light you provide and the path that you place for us. Have a great, happy new year. Happy new year.